This episode of Tri Talk is brought to you by Powertry.com, your source for triathlon gear, apparel, and wetsuits. Why your choice of apparel may be more important than your choice of helmet or hydration, and what you've been missing from my supplemental blog. It's textiles and typing today on Tri Talk. <laughs> Welcome to Tri Talk, your podcast source for triathlon tips, training news, and more. I'd like to say hello to listeners from the two smallest Tri Talk markets, Egypt and the Ukraine. Thanks for listening to Tri Talk, all three of you. My goal at Tri Talk is to help you swim, bike, and run faster to meet your personal triathlon goals. Whether you are an elite or amateur triathlete, we cover sprint distance to Ironman distance. I'm your host, David Warden, and this is Tri Talk, episode number 77. Try Talk, we conclude the preliminary wind tunnel tests with a look at apparel. Is apparel as important as the other cycling hardware? Well, it's certainly more important than I thought it was before the test, and we'll take a closer look. Plus, you may not know that I blog additional content that has never before made it to the podcast, and I'll give you a brief sample of what you've been missing, and I can assure you that it will absolutely not help you swim, bike, or run faster, but it might entertain you. All right, let's get on to the good stuff. Unlike um, bicycle frames or bicycle wheels or helmets or hydration systems, for some reason, triathlon apparel is rarely tested in the wind tunnel. But the potential for that apparel to impact aerodynamics really is just as great. The reason that testing apparel is so often disregarded, frankly, is unclear to me. Is it because... Unlike their triathlon hardware colleagues, the textile manufacturers themselves never test or tout the aerodynamic properties of their products? Or is it because triathletes themselves just assume that anything without an airfoil is unworthy of consideration so it just doesn't get much interest? Or could it be that the self-appointed pundits of the multi-sports industry have neglected this particular portion of wind tunnel testing? Well, as one of those self-appointed pundits... I know that I'm guilty of that, and it's it's not that I considered apparel irrelevant, it's that I considered it aerodynamically insignificant for so long. But then a couple years ago, I was reviewing the results of an athlete who had done his own wind tunnel testing visit and had put a real emphasis on testing the apparel, and I was surprised to see the significant difference in performance between his choices of apparel. So I was determined to add apparel to a more rigorous test at some point in the future when I knew I was going to do some wind tunnel testing. And so, of course, we added apparel to the wind tunnel testing that we did last a uh, couple months ago. And yet, even then, even though I knew that apparel had been neglected, even then, when it came down to prioritizing what we were going to do, sure enough, 
hydration systems and helmets were the top of my list because I was the most that was I was the most interested in that. And then apparel became a secondary thing if we had time. We did have some time, but I got to tell you, I really regret not testing the apparel more. Um, and even though I was conscious of the fact that apparel had been under-tested and undervalued in wind tunnel testing, I still did it. So we, we do have some apparel tested here. It's not as much as the helmets and the hydration, but it's enough for us to get excited about what we're going to test in the future. Now, my goal in, in, in testing this apparel was really not to determine the fastest, the quote-unquote fastest suit, but rather to get some idea of the initial delta between outfits or what would the performance difference be between the best and the worst apparel um, kind of similar to what our hydro- hydration systems were. What, what was the best and the worst performer? How big was the delta between the best and the worst? And then come up with a secondary plan on how to really test the best apparel, right? Um, but we wanted to find out what was the big difference between how big the differences could be between different apparel. Now, additionally, with the growing popularity of compression gear when racing, as opposed to just using compression gear for recovery. A lot of people are using compression gear a ton when racing. I wanted to get some idea of how wearing compression on the bike would impact aerodynamics because as you know it'd be it's a little tough to transition and put on your compression gear heading out to the run. It's going to take a lot of time, so most athletes are wearing the compression gear on the swim, onto the bike and then out onto the run. But what's that going to do to your aerodynamics, right? It's a, it's an interesting situation for full and half Ironman athletes because most compression products recommend a maximum of a few hours of use during exercise. And therefore, for those longer distance athletes, you're not technically, you shouldn't be wearing the compression for that long during the bike. Now, for sprint and Olympic distance, this is going to be a very relevant test, but I'm not sure how we're going to apply this to full and half Ironman athletes who can only wear it for a few hours at a time. Maybe you do put it on for the bike. Maybe you take it off for the run. I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, now, I encourage you to review uh, episode uh, 76, um, which we talked about, of course, the preliminary wind tunnel test on our hydration systems, because I want you to review those disclaimers and clarifiers regarding what baseline equipment we use, the rider size, the rider position, um, and the apparel tests immediately followed our hydration tests in that same, uh, and on that same day in that same visit. Um, but I want you to, if you have some time, go back either to our blog, powertry.com, and click on blog, or listen to episode 76 again, just to make sure you know what the uh, all the clarifiers about how we did the test. The same things apply to the apparel testing, which includes doing it with just zero degrees of yaw, which makes them makes the results, frankly, slightly more than interesting in terms of results. Um, and you may be disappointed with the limited number of products that we tested, both due to my limited vision frankly, and plus uh, the goal of simply determining the potential spread of apparel performance. But we did get a good a good sample size in there. It just wasn't as big as our hydration, for example. So I'm going to present this data the exact same manner as the hydration results. If you remember from episode 76, we did a 180K and a 40K distance, with 180K, of course, being the Ironman distance. The rider output was 150 watts. The 40K Olympic distance, the rider output was 220 watts. This is a 70-kilogram rider in uh, both of these cases. So our baseline was the exact same baseline from the hydration test. We had a baseline DeSoto lift foil. This baseline is with no water bottles. It's with the Louis Garneau uh, rocket helmet with visor. 
Um, and uh, again, a few other equipment specifics you can read about in the blog or go back to episode 76. Anyway, the uh, baseline time for that DeSoto lift foil was the exact same baseline time, of course, for the hydration test with no water bottles. For the Olympic time, it was 107.46. Uh, for the uh, Ironman time, it was 5 hours, 56 minutes, 31.8 seconds. Now, the best performer of the items that we tested, we actually tested a total of six, uh, well, actually seven, excuse me, seven items, a baseline with the DeSoto lift foil. It's a one-piece tri-suit. We also tested the CEP compression calf sleeve, the 2 times U compression calf sleeve, a Zoot two-piece apparel, a DeSoto two-piece apparel, or top and a bottom, the Perlozumi Pro tri-suit, and the DeSoto Forza tri-suit. Those were the seven products that we had tested. Again, our baseline was that DeSoto lift foil. Once again, I'm going to encourage you to go to the blog because everything I'm telling you here is in a nice, clean table at powertry.com. Click on the blog and you'll be able to see everything in a in a much cleaner table. It's a little bit easier to uh, absorb via uh, your computer monitor rather than hearing it with my voice, but I'll go through it really quickly. You can get an idea of what we tested. So the best performer uh, was the DeSoto lift foil with the CEP compression calf. Believe it or not, having that compression calf sleeve actually took away 74 seconds from an Olympic distance 40K at 225 watts. That's right. It's a pretty good chunk of time, 73 seconds from wearing the CEP, CEP compression calf sleeve, that same um, that same aerodynamics on a Ironman distance would save you 487 seconds. That is a lot of time. That's about 12 minutes over an Ironman distance from using that CEP compression. Now it's not just the compression though, because when we tested the two times U compression, which is very similar, you, you can tell the material is different. They're, they're distinctly different materials, but they're both in terms of surface area and what's covering your leg. They're both identical in terms of really the surface area. The two times U compression calf actually added 23 seconds to the Olympic distance and added almost two minutes to the Ironman distance. So it was something very specific to the material, to the design, to the, the ridges, the ribbing in the CEP compression calf. Um, compared to the two times U, it was basically a 100-second swing based on those two compression calf sleeves over an Olympic distance and a humongous difference of about 14 or 15 minutes over the Ironman distance. So that was the biggest eye-opener to us. And that was, of course, both of those compression uh, were with the DeSoto lift foil, which did end up being, by the way, the best one-piece tri-suit as well. Um, moving on, the next best performer was the Zoot two-piece. This is just a, a standard Zoot um, two-piece top and bottom. This added 33 seconds or 33 seconds slower compared to the DeSoto lift foil uh, over an Olympic distance and 168 seconds slower over an Ironman distance. The next best performer was the DeSoto two-piece. It added 49 seconds to an Olympic distance compared to the baseline uh, lift foil and added 250 seconds to the Ironman distance. Now, the interesting part next, of course, is that the uh, the two worst performers in our test were the other one-piece tri-suits. The Perlozumi Pro added 52 seconds to the Olympic distance and 267 seconds to the Ironman distance. And the DeSoto Forza tri-suit, the one-piece, added 159 seconds, almost three minutes to an Olympic distance, um, compared to 813 seconds to the Ironman distance. 
All right, again, go to powertry.com, click on the blog, you'll be able to read this a lot better. So what can we take away from this initial wind tunnel run on apparel? Again, not much. We got to do it with additional yaw tests, but here's the few things, of course, that stand out. I had always imagined and hoped that doing wind tunnel testing would bring me peace and clarity to my life. But instead, it's done nothing but add more anxiety because the difference between the best and least performing apparel, similar to our helmets, is extremely frightening. So gone are my innocent days of telling athletes they can pick any apparel they want purely based on the price, maybe the carry capacity, the comfort, and the color. I've been telling athletes for a long time, hey, the apparel, yeah, it probably matters, but it's not enough that you need to worry about it. Get something comfortable. Get something that you think you look good in. But now, a 13-minute difference over an Ironman between two leading one-piece tri-suits, that's enough to send my adrenaline through the roof even as I read this. Now, have you ever wondered why your buddy always seems to come out ahead of you on the bike when you two have the same power-to-weight ratio? It's these little unknowns. Even though you train the same and you have the same power-to-weight ratio, maybe you guys even bought the same bike and you're wondering, why the heck does he do better than me on the bike on race day? It's these little things that seem so inconsequential, like between tri-suit A, B, or C that costs you 13 and a half minutes over an Ironman distance. So my only consolation that brings me any peace at all is that I actually have been fortunate enough to have been racing with the lift foil for the last four years. So by pure chance, I've been racing with the fastest suit that we tested anyway. And I'm sure there's faster suits out there, but we'll include that in our in our next round of testing. But for the three one-piece that we tested, um, the lift foil certainly was the best one. All right, the next thing that comes to mind is the fact that some of the two-piece apparel outperformed the tri-suits is a little scary. And maybe that's just me repeating what I just said a moment ago, but I would have thought that all the one-piece, regardless, would have outperformed the two-piece. And this, again, is similar to our our helmet test that we did that you can hear about in episode 75, where the standard road helmet outperformed half of the 10 helmets that we tested. Um, So just because it's a narrow helmet doesn't mean it's going to make you faster. And just because it's a one-piece doesn't mean it's going to make you faster. Um, Now, of course... I think that um, the biggest thing out of all this is the fact that the compression gear was the most interesting. Yes, the CEP compression improved aerodynamics while the two times use slightly decreased it, the performance. But all I can say is regardless is that I'm really looking forward to only shaving from my knee to my mid-thigh from now on because I can let my compression gear cover the rest of my shave-scarred legs. I just have to shave, you know, just a few inches instead of the whole leg now because I can use compression gear to cover my legs. Hooray. Um, Now, here's the catch, though. I talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the episode is that CEP, if you go to their website, they recommend that you do not exercise for more than two to three hours at a time in their compression socks or compression calf sleeves. So it just may not be a reasonable choice for half and full Ironman racing, uh, even though it's going to save you a ton of time. Um, again, the CEP compression cast sleeve would be 487 seconds. That's a lot of time over an Ironman distance. I just don't think it's worth it. I think it's unsafe to go six hours or five hours wearing that compression cast sleeve. Um, I suppose you could wear it for the first three hours of the bike and then strip them off and, and ride the rest without it and then maybe put them on again for the run. That would probably save you some time in the long run if you're if you can accept these tests. But other than that... You know, it seems like sprint and Olympic, you're going to be okay. But uh, half and full Ironman, I'm not sure how you're going to implement using this compression um, in terms of an aerodynamic advantage if you're going to be on the bike that long. Um, Okay, 
Also, keep in mind that uh, just like the tri-suits and the helmets, if you just go out and get a random pair of compression gear, it may actually be slowing you down on the bike compared to speeding you up. We only tested two compression calf sleeves. We should have tested five or six. Um, we will next time. But there could be a big difference between all of those um, products. And again, it also could be related to calf circumference. It could be related to saddle height. Um, it could be related to your shoes as well. There's a, there's a lot of unknowns. Even though I'm telling you guys, yeah, the CEP compression worked great on me. I'll sure be using it. I don't know that I want you to go out and buy it and think you're going to shave 10 minutes off your Ironman time for both the safety of wearing it that long and the fact that there's just not enough data to really support that yet. But it really is interesting stuff. All right, next point. Um, even though I've been saying frequently, hey, we got to do more yaw tests, I really wonder how much is additional yaw testing going to make on apparel, right? I would imagine that, that uh, of course, the yaw test with something like wheels or hydration or helmets that have um, significant aerodynamic shaping, um, yaw tests are going to make a big difference. But is, is yaw testing going to make that big of a difference for apparel? Yeah, it probably will. I, I'm usually wrong about these things going into the wind tunnel, but I'm going to be surprised if we have a big difference uh, in yaw or a big t- difference in results based on different yaw on apparel um, compared to uh, the big difference I'm sure we would see in something like helmets and hydration. Um, now, here's the, I think this is the biggest kicker from all of this, the, the biggest takeaway point from the tests on apparel. If you've been following the results of the last three podcasts and the last three sets of tests on helmets and hydration and now apparel, you'll note that it is actually apparel that has both the best performance and the worst performance of any of the other 36 products tested. Meaning not only does apparel have the biggest distribution or delta between the best and the worst performer within the apparel subset, the apparel testing had the greatest performance and the worst performance compared to any of the 36 products we tested. Meaning based on these initial tests, it's possible that apparel may be the most important equipment choice you make aerodynamically. And again, we spent so much time and there's so much discussion on wheels, on helmets, on bike frames, on hydration systems. And yet, based on these initial tests, it was apparel that had the best performance and the worst performance and therefore may be the most important decision you're going to make in terms of an equipment purchase, at least in terms of aerodynamics. Um, And when you think about it, is that really any surprise, right? Because what, what is exposed to the most surface area when you're riding? Is it a water bottle? Is it a helmet? Or is it 50 to 75% of your body, which your apparel is covering? So in a way, it makes sense that apparel could be the most significant factor in your overall aerodynamics. It really shouldn't be that big of a surprise. All right, so overall, the apparel testing requires a lot more research with both a broader range of product and a broader range of yada to complete those results. But until then, I got to tell you, I'm keeping my lift foil on and I'm adding the CEP compression to my sprint and Olympic racing just in case the re- initial results are right because it looks pretty good so far. Now, you'll recall my, my rather long argument against using aerodynamics as the primary factor in choosing a hydration system from episode 76. And frankly, the same thing applies here. Sure, the lift foil looks good initially, right? But until the 2011 version of the lift foil, it didn't have any pad. And by the way, the lift foil only comes in black. So can you imagine doing a half or a full Ironman on a hot day 
in a black one piece with no pad, uh, that's going to be pretty rough unless you've really trained your butt for that kind of uh, that kind of pounding. And you can handle the uh, the black coming down on you in a hot day. Now, for sprint and Olympics distance racing, I'm a sprint junkie myself. Uh, this is no problem. One piece, black suit, no pad, I can take it. But for an Ironman athlete, you're going to have to consider something like comfort or temperature or price or pockets, which are going to be equally as important to you when choosing a tri-suit as the aerodynamics of it all. So don't just pick a suit based on aerodynamics. There's lots of other things to consider. The lift foil has no pockets either. Again, it, it is a it is a sprint distance specialist suit in my mind, maybe Olympic distance. This report concludes our preliminary report on helmets, hydration, and apparel. And uh, I look forward to our uh, next set of tests. This episode is brought to you by powertry.com where you can save 30% or more on all 2010 Zoot and DeSoto apparel. So while you're checking out the blog post with the data on apparel on the wind tunnel, why don't you check out the apparel at powertry.com? All right, moving on. You may not have known that Power that TriTalk is only one of several places that you can find me rambling, and I am rambling today, about various triathlon topics. At powertry.com, you can click on our blog link and find dozens of additional posts by me and other top contributors in the triathlon business. To prove to you that you'll want to add our blog to your browser's homepage, here are two samples of what you've been missing. The first from June of 2010 was written after I experienced my first penalty in triathlon and it's entitled crime and punishment. It's happened after seven years of triathlon, 20 years of endurance racing and nearly 100 races. It has finally happened like the antagonist Raskolnikov of Dostoevsky's epic novel from which this blog is entitled I'm suffering the psychological and social consequences from violating the law. And as you'll soon discover, I literally broke the law. Not only USAT Competitive Rule 5.4, but Utah Code Title 41, Chapter 6A, Section 708. First of all, I did it. I'm guilty. I'm red-handed. I'm culpable. I explicitly waive my Miranda rights. This blog isn't about making excuses. I've talked my way out of speeding tickets moving violations, and dirty dishes when I felt that an injustice was about to be done. But in this case, as soon as the head referee told me of the violation, I said to myself, oh yeah, I remember I, I did do that. Well, let's get something straight, though. It wasn't for drafting. If you assumed my penalty was drafting, I'm insulted for two reasons. First, I'm so fast on the bike, I can't possibly take more than five seconds to pass someone, let alone 15 seconds. And second, people who draft are wicked, and I'm not wicked. There is an extra level in the underworld for people who draft. See the Apocrypha, Book of David, chapter 1, verse 1. It all happened like this. Already devastated from a disappointing third-place finish at the Cache Valley Triathlon, I was sulking and packing up, when I saw the Tri-Utah race director, Chris Bowerbank, apologizing that I had to leave early to start a two-hour drive back home and that I would not be at the awards ceremony, Chris looked at me sadly and said as gently as he could, David, I'm sorry, you didn't come in third. My first reaction was, sweet, the first two guys got a penalty, those lousy cheaters. But then Chris continued, you got nailed with a penalty. Me? ambassador to triathlon 
with a following of dozens. The former vice chair of the USAT Regional Council, the winner of the 12-person participant 2010 Buffalo Duathlon, winners of my caliber, don't break the rules. I marched over to the head referee, ready to file a protest that I did not draft. Excuse me, buddy, have you seen my bike splits? I need to draft like Governor Arnold needs more muscles. After verifying that my race number was correct, the referee confidently turned to me and without reservation said, crossed a solid yellow line. Oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. You mean that violation. And it all came back to me. Late in the bike ride, approaching a tight left turn, there were two cyclists just ahead of me, and it was a clear situation where a bottleneck was going to occur and slow me down. The turn had clear vision, and there were no cars approaching from the other direction. I deemed it, quote-unquote, safe to make a pass, which I could have done by either... A, held back outside the drafting zone and waited until all three of us had made the left-hand turn and then make the pass, or B, accelerated and catch them before or at the turn. Choosing the latter, we reached the turn at about the same time, and I let out an authoritative on your left, and I mean really on the left. I took that left turn like a Cat 1 rider, cutting so far on the inside of the road that I could have picked the dandelions that decorated the adjacent field. I wasn't only riding on the left side of the road, I was riding on the inside of the shoulder of the left side of the road. I even remember the referee riding up next to me right after that, and lingering a little longer than I ever remember the referee lingering before on the motorcycle. I thought he was just admiring my pass. So, snapping back to the present and somewhat stunned that I really had done the violation, a few excuses for the head ref for crossing the double yellow line came to mind, such as, Apologies, my good chap, I'm from across the pond and that's where we ride in jolly old England. Or, You think that's dangerous, but I drive my car the same way. Or, I had to swerve to avoid a Democrat, which is an endangered species in Cache County. But no, to my shame, all I could muster was, you're right, and thanks for keeping us safe. I shook the referee's hand and walked to my car. I said this blog would not be about excuses, but in my defense, it never even occurred to me at the time. I mean, I took that left-hand turn the same way I took the multiple right-hand turns on the inside. But just think, if every hot dog in a triathlon did this, eventually... Turning left on the inside of the road will result in a head-on collision, not only risking future events for everybody else, but injury and even death. That rule is a critical one. It's not about a competitive advantage. It's about keeping us safe. Part of the irony is that in the two, yes, two, two pre-race meetings that took place, the outstanding official Carolyn Dahl, a former USAT board member, had gone over the rules, which specifically covered riding on the right side of the road. I had sufficient warning. So like Raskolnikov, I found myself isolated from the rest of the world after the crime had come to light. I hadn't spoken to another triathlete since the incident. I felt like I owed fourth place an apology, robbing him of the rare opportunity of crossing the finish line, knowing that he had a podium spot with the cheer of the crowd and the smiles from his family. I feel tainted and dirty. Raskolnikov went to Siberian prison. I went to Chevron and ate an entire box of Hostess raspberry-filled donuts, which is 1,500 calories and 1 million grams of fat per box. I'm not sure who ended up suffering more, me or Raskolnikov. There is some good that will come out of this. I hope this entry 
will educate others about this lesser-known rule and maybe even prevent an accident. Additionally, it has recommitted me to keeping the rules. So here's to the next 20 years of endurance racing, penalty-free. This next post was written in September of 2010 at the end of the race season, imploring race directors to, as the title suggests, let's get the swim distance right. Dear Allie, Travis, Chris, Brogue, Joe, Aaron, and the hundreds of other fine race directors around the world, allow me to begin my letter with a brief review on how we arrived at the current situation. In the year 1675, the Italian scientist Tito Livio Berrettini introduced the word meter to the world as a proposed universal measure to bring unity to a chaotic system of weights and measures. By 1791, France had adopted the meter as one millionth of one quarter of the Earth's diameter, and thus the metric system was born. Fast forward to 1989 and the creation of the International Triathlon Union. Based on the popular distance introduced by the U.S. Triathlon Series in the 1980s, the ITU standardizes the new Olympic distance triathlon as a 1.5-kilometer swim, 40-kilometer bike, and a 10-kilometer run, and the sprint distance as one-half of the Olympic. It is tempting to argue how fair, quote-unquote, this distribution of the three sports is. Runners and swimmers often complain that the Olympic triathlon distance is simply a steeplechase, centered around the bike. To them, I reply that baseball, a sport of running, throwing, and hitting, is unfairly biased toward throwing. Baseball hitters have very little opportunity to make it to first base, and in fact only do so about 20% of the time. Even if they do make it to first base, the odds of getting back home are slim due to the distance between bases. Were we to make baseball quote-unquote fair, for runners and hitters, we would shorten the distance between the bases, we'd move the pitching mound back another 30 feet, and extend the outfield by another 200 feet to give hitters and runners a more even chance to score, thus bringing an average Major League Baseball ERA from a miserly 2.0 to a 10.0. Why don't we make baseball more fair? Because that's the way baseball was invented! To propose that the distances in baseball or triathlon are unfair or unbalanced and should be adjusted is an insult to the sacred institution of the respective sports. That's just the way they were created. And if you don't like the distances, invent your own triathlon distance and see how you fare. So why this odd preamble regarding meters and baseball? Well, for three reasons. First, to establish that a unified and consistent measurement of triathlon course distance is possible and expected. Two, to preempt the argument that the modification of any of the three disciplines is somehow a justified protest to balance the sport. And three, to condemn any sort of multi-sport vigilantism in course layout. Now that I've established some history and why the Olympic and sprint distance swims are and must remain a 1.5 and 0.75 kilometer swim, let me share my bewilderment why it rarely is. Race directors, I understand. You need to adjust the bike and run distances for an event. You've got traffic. You've got construction. You've got intersections. It's all about safety. You only have so much safe road to work with sometimes. I never have heartburn when the bike is caught short by a couple of miles to keep me safe. You can't fill a full 5K into a residential area? No problem. That's the cost of putting on a race. But the swim, 
for crying out loud, is another story. Water has no intersections. There are no potholes. There are no railroad tracks. You can put those buoys anywhere you want. There's no reason for a swim not to be within 2% of a 1,500 meter distance. That's a 100 foot margin of error. In fact, the International Triathlon Union allows a 5% variance on the bike and run portion of an ITU sanctioned course, but shows no mercy for swim distance variation. Why not? Well, like me, they don't see why the swim distance can't be precise. A body of water is a race director's blank canvas where they are free to create. The swim is the first impression of your race for an athlete and represents how seriously you take your responsibility as a race director to attention and detail. Now, granted, I haven't taken out my meter wheel or GPS and measured your swim course. But it doesn't take a genius to look at some of the swim splits and discern that they are way, way off. For example, at a recent local sprint event, the median time for the top 10 swimmers in a 300-person event was 14.22. Really? The 10 best swimmers out of 350, the top 3% of the field on the swim, averaged a 1 minute 55 second per 100 meters. Okay, I'll give you one minute from the water to T1 to the timing mat for a median time of 13.22. That's still a pathetic 1 minute 47 seconds per 100 meters for the top 3% of the swimmers over 750 meters. I don't think so. I'm pretty sure your swim was a little long. Sometimes I wonder if the race directors have been doing this for so long, they think they can just eyeball the swim course, which results in buoy creep. I swear they get further away every year. The only thing unfair about the swim distance in an Olympic or a sprint event is when an athlete has trained for 750 meters and gets 1,000 meters. Now, I tell my kids that the difference between whining and constructive complaining is that whining comes without suggestions for improvement. So to avoid whining, allow me to offer some solutions to the potential reasons for an inaccurate swim distance course. Excuse number one, it's not possible to measure that precisely. The answer is, of course it is. Modern technology has provided us with laser measurement devices for just a few hundred dollars and accurate up to 200 meters. Just plant yourself in between buoy A and buoy B, 125 meters from you to, to A, 125 meters from you to B is, guess what? 250 meters between buoy A and B. It's a piece of cake. Excuse number two, the wind blows the buoys overnight, so it's not my fault. The answer is place them in the morning or get heavier anchors. Excuse number three, uh, I don't place the buoys, the volunteers do. Answer, please, you're the race director, not their ecclesiastical leader. You can make it happen. Excuse number four, who are you again? Answer, oh, I'm very important. You had better take heed. Number five, I've got more important things to worry about at a race. I'm not willing or I'm not able to go to all the trouble to get the swim distance accurate. The answer, I appreciate your honesty. However, please don't advertise your event as an Olympic or sprint event. Advertise it as a unique triathlon experience with a surprise swim distance somewhere between 500 meters of a standard swim distance. If you advertise your event as 750 meters or a sprint distance, it better be pretty close to 750 meters. The next excuse, 
I take my measurements very seriously, but the swim times still look long. The answer? Ah, yes. Probably the number one reason for a longer than necessary swim and the easiest to correct. I do see race directors take the time to really create an accurate 750 meter loop, only then to place the first buoy 200 meters from shore. Remember that your swim distances need to account for the distance from the shore to the first or last buoy. If you place the first or last buoy 50 meters from shore and the athletes do one 750 meter loop, they have really swam 800 meters to get to shore. As a result, your loop must only be 700 meters with another 50 meters to shore to equal 750 total meters. All right, is swimming my weakest sport? Yes. Do I complain about drastically shortened indoor pool events? No. Is this a pathetic attempt at an aging triathlete to try and gain some competitive advantage for the next season? Eh, maybe. Would I still be complaining about this if swimming were my strong suit? After some deep soul searching, I can honestly say yes, because I'm a purist at heart and I want the sport to be consistent around the world. Of all the local races, this is my one and only complaint to the race directors. I'm spoiled that I can race in 50 to 20 high-quality events in my backyard every year if I wanted to, and all of them some of the best in the world. And I really regret that I didn't first write a 700-word article singing the praises of race directors who get 99% of everything right. But, race directors, make this one change, and like the Italian scientist Tito Livio Berrettini, you'll make a huge step toward the unification of a process badly in need of repair. That's all for this episode. I'll be back next month with episode number 78. And by that time, I will have completed my first triathlon of 2011. So that episode will either be extremely upbeat or extremely depressing. I'm afraid you're going to be a victim of my mood. Uh, before I go, I do want to give a quick shout out to www.expresswetsuit.com, who did a miracle on repairing a tear in my wetsuit. And I'm not getting compensated for this prop. I just had a really, really good experience with these people. I had a small tear in the thigh of my awesome 2xU Velocity wetsuit. And by the time ExpressWetsuit.com had been done with it and sent it back to me, I, I had a hard time even finding the original tear. They had repaired it so well, I could barely even find where that tear was. So check them out at www.expresswetsuit.com and tell them David Warden sent you. Otherwise, they're going to be really confused why they're getting so much more business all of a sudden. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.